The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. It's Culture Club time and I'm delighted that we're joined today by Lucy Worsley, who has published her new book, Agatha Christie, A Very Elusive Woman. Uh, of course, you will also know her from various BBC TV shows and also the BBC podcast Lady Killers, which we'll get to in a little while. But Lucy, first of all, talk to me about Agatha Christie because it strikes me that for a woman who was known for her books and plays, murder mysteries, that her own life may have actually been more interesting than anything she wrote about. Well, I would argue that. Absolutely, I would. Yes, yes. A lot of people might have the idea that she was sort of a little old lady, a bit like Miss Marple, maybe dressed in tweeds, but that sort of covers up the fact that she was a very modern, up-to-date woman who lived a really long and exciting life. You know, all the big things that happened in the 20th century happened to her. Such as? The two world wars. She served as a nurse and uh, she also had a job in the hospital pharmacy mixing up medicines slash poisons that we might come on to. She entered the workplace as an upper-class girl, which was quite extraordinary. Um, She experienced divorce. She experienced being a working single mum to her daughter. Which, of course, was very unusual in that era. It was, certainly. And And the fact that she also spoke about it so openly. Yes, she was really quite open about some of these quite personal problems that happened to her, including, including, and I think this is a key one, she experienced mental ill health. And as a result of that, she became very interested in the new modern science of psychology as well, which I think is key to her detective fiction. You know, a detective is a bit like a psychologist. They need to understand motive. They need to understand what Poirot called the secrets at the heart. She also understood poisons. Oh, she understood poisons. Yes, yes, yes. And it was it, it was it was only because of World War One, really, that a girl like her who came from an upper-crust family, destined to get married, she she had to roll up her sleeves and get involved in this world of work and responsibility. It was a big job mixing up medicine because just a tiny slip and it could all go wrong. And this inspired her first detective story, which, funnily enough, featured a poisoning. Tell us about her disappearance. Her disappearance is the best-known thing that she's known for after her writing. And people have the sense of that this was a real-life crime drama, perhaps worthy of the pen of Agatha Christie herself, because in the notorious year of 1926, she disappeared. She disappeared for 11 days. There was a huge national manhunt for her, and she was eventually discovered living under a false name in a hotel in Harrogate. And... People didn't really believe the explanation that she gave for what she was doing there. And this whole narrative sprang up that maybe she'd done it to get publicity for her books or maybe she'd done it in order to frame her cheating husband for having murdered her. Maybe maybe she was trying to get her revenge on this man who'd been unfaithful to her, which were both attractive stories. I can see why people went for those two, but not the truth. What was the truth? What conclusion did you reach? I reached the conclusion that we should believe her version of the facts, which, extraordinarily to me, she gave, almost at the time, a few months later, she gave an interview to the Daily Mail that said why she disappeared, but the thing is, nobody wanted to listen, nobody wanted to believe her, because what she had to say was hard to hear, and she had 
a story, which was that she'd experienced suicidal thoughts this night that she disappeared and that she'd been really, really ill. So you can see why... And again, again, those things weren't spoken about publicly in that era, were they? Well, there was there was a discussion going on about mental health because we were just at the... World War One had just happened and one feature of that was people suffering from the trauma of war. Shell shock. Shell shock, exactly, exactly. But the problem with shell shock is that a lot of people didn't believe in it. They thought it was shirking. They thought it was a way of getting out of, you know, going back to the front. So when Agatha Christie said that she'd experienced something similar, her mother had died, her husband had betrayed her, she was under huge pressure to produce the next bestseller, she was under a lot of pressure. When she said that she'd had a bad reaction to that, it's not something that a lot of people believed. Why did you decide to write about Agatha Christie? Because an awful lot of the work that you've done previously with BBC in particular has been on historical topics, mainly relating to the royals. Nah, that's true, that's true. That That is my day job, if you like. I work for the charity Historic Royal Palaces. But I have been interested... My, my hobby is detective fiction. I, I, I have an unhealthy interest in violent death. And she appealed to me as a woman whose story also summed up the experience of a lot of women's lives in the 20th century, actually. And her books, her books are fabulous entertainment and that's why most people read them. But to me, as a historian, they also tell a fabulous story about the changing attitudes that people had as the century went on. Later, we're going to get to your deep interest as well in female murderers. You seem to have a particular grow, as we'd say here in Ireland, for that particular topic. But I want to get to our Culture Club choices, because you've been good enough to fill in the details, the answers to all the questions we gave you. And the first question we ask every guest on the Culture Club is, the first piece of music they ever bought, first single, if it applies to be a single. And uh, you've picked something from the movie Dirty Dancing. Well, I have a secret fantasy life in which I am some kind of fabulous dancer and so I've picked the one um, I don't know officially what it's called but it goes um, uh, how does it go we're going to hear it we're going to hear it but this is the is famous it called of, have I no, the time I've of my life I've had the time of my I've life I've had the time of my life I Jennifer didn't know that was... Warrens and Bill Medley it's a famous song yes yes yes, yes. and he flies her through the air and she's kind of lying flat like this with her wings out oh it's brilliant it's brilliant let's hear a bit of it I'm so long now I found some hopes in the That's brought a smile back to your face. That was brilliant. (laughs) First single. Okay, favourite band or artist? Who are you going to talk about? I'm very fond of Mr. Michael Bublé. 
Why so? Ah, oh, he's such a charming young man. I mean, all of his songs, I love that sort of easy listening, swing, big band type music. Have you ever had him on your show? No, he has been a guest on other shows here on the station, but not on this particular show. I would be devastated to hear that he's kind of nasty in real life because he seems so lovely. And I've been to see him at the O2 and there were 15,000 women in their 30s and 40s all screaming for him and he handled it so gracefully. Is he not a little bit bland? Bland? No way! That cheeky twinkle in his eye. He's such a fine, upstanding young man. Oh, my goodness. And then his voice as well. Let's hear a little bit of his voice. Let's hear him sing Sway. When marimba rhythms start to play Dance with me, make me sway Like a lazy ocean hugs the shore Hold me Sway me more Like a flower bending in the breeze Bend with me, sway with ease When you dance you have to play with me Stay with me, sway with me Other dancers may be on the floor Dear, but my eyes will see only you Only you have that magic technique When we sway, I go weak I can hear the sound of violins Long before it begins I'm going to risk alienating perhaps a big chunk of our audience and I say maybe not bland but hardly your generation's Frank Sinatra he's more Barry Manilow isn't he? I like Barry Manilow too <laughs> what do you like? <laughs> okay best gig you were ever at what are you going to pick for us? You have something from the Hampton Court Palace Music Festival. That's right. Every year at Hampton Court, we have the flower show. And then the next thing that comes around in July is the music festival. And I work at Hampton Court. It's my office. So just explain what Hampton Court is. is. Hampton Court is the greatest surviving Tudor palace. It's uh, just outside London. It has the one, two, three huge courtyards. And when you walk there, you're walking in the footsteps of Henry VIII and Berlin. My goodness, it's a... a remarkable office to have. And so it's in use still, is it? It's a, you can come visit it. It's not in use as a royal palace anymore, not been lived in since the 18th century. So now it is kind of like a, a museum. Plus, we've got our Tudor cooks working in the kitchens, we've got our amazing gardens, and you can walk through all the state apartments. And a really special thing to do is to come in July when um, the, the the seating is all brought in and the stage is all brought in, and we, we have we have all the all the top acts who are on the kind of summer festival cir- circuit coming. Come and play for us. We always we always get Rick Astley because he lives really close by. (laughs) Never going to give you off. Exactly. And Kylie Minogue came in. I saw her big van parked in Tennis Court Lane, which is where I walk up to my office. And in it, there was this huge box marked Kylie's shoes. She bought so many shoes with her. For did her you act. try and get in to have a check out what the shoes were like? Well, I I felt that would have been a bit stalkerish. I left her shoes alone. I think a lot of women would have taken the opportunity <laughs> to dip into the shoes, particularly to pass to V in that area. So that's the best gig that you have gone for. Let's move on to movies. And I was expecting that you were going to have something maybe from the Tudor era or that you would have something like Wolf Hall or whatever. You've gone for Top Gun and not just the original Top Gun. 
Top Gun 2, Maverick, the recently released mm. follow-up. Mm. Why have you selected that? Well, it's a film I've been thinking a lot about recently for reasons to do with Agatha Christie. Because, you know, when she, when she got married, um, she turned down nine proposals already. Um, she was tall, she was blonde, she was beautiful. And then one day she walked into a ballroom where she met the Tenth Man. And he wasn't really right for her, but I know why she did it. He, <laughs> he was handsome. He was charming. He was glamorously a, um, an aeroplane pilot and he rode a motorbike. He was Tom Cruise. I could see why she fell head over head. In he wasn't head, a small American, though, was he? <laughs> no, he was, he was tall and he was English and he was, he was blonde as well, unlike Tom Cruise. But, when you read about this relationship that she had with him, you think, mm, they seem very different from each other. What was going on there? But the first time when I was in the Christie archive, I actually saw a photograph of this guy, Archibald Christie, who would give her her name. She stayed, she kept his name even after they got divorced. As soon as I saw this photo and I saw how hot he was, I thought, okay, it all makes sense. Yeah, she married for lust. Okay. And you lost after Tom Cruise and watching Top Gun 2 Maverick. Right? <sighs> There's something so attractive about him. It, you know, I even forget the Scientology. He's, he's such a great film star, isn't he? He's so charismatic. I haven't seen Top Gun 2 Maverick. You're the only person in the world who's not seen it yet. Have you not heard people saying how enjoyable it is? I haven't seen Top Gun either. Oh, well, it's good, 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 clean family fun. Let's hear a clip from Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer in a scene from Top Gun Maverick. I'm not a teacher, I I'm a fighter pilot. I'm a naval aviator. It's not what I am. It's who I am. How do I teach that? Even if I could teach it, it's not what Rooster wants. It's not what the Navy wants. That's where they can be the last time. The only reason I'm here is you. If I send him on this mission, he might never come home. And if I don't send him, he'll never forgive me. Either way, I could lose him forever. The Navy needs Maverick. The kid needs Maverick. That's why I fought for you. That's why you're still here. You see, all this melodrama <laughs> connected with war and fighting, that's why she fell for Archibald Christie. We will have lots more in the Culture Club with Lucy Worsley when we come back after this break. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Welcome back to the Culture Club. We have Lucy Worsley with us, who is the author of Agatha Christie, a very elusive woman. And you probably know Lucy from many of the BBC television series on historic, historical topics that she has hosted over the years. And you also host a podcast. And when we asked you to nominate favourite podcast, 
you nominated your own one. I know, isn't that, isn't that incredibly narcissistic of me? But I, 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 I feel my, my defence is it's not just me. It's a team effort. In Lady Killers, we get a, we get together what we call our Ladies Detective Agency, which is me and Roz, the other historian, and we get in a psychiatrist or a police officer or a barrister. We get somebody who can throw light on these these cold well cases from Victorian Britain. And America and Canada and, and beyond, actually. We, we go global. How do you select the cases? Well, we pick cases where there's a woman who killed. And um, also we can explore a wider theme about society. You know, crime is great for historians because when a crime happens, things get written down that otherwise wouldn't be. Things from what they were wearing, what the room was like, to... You know what was what, what? What did they believe about the world? What were their motives? And sometimes, well, Victorian murderesses are really important in women's history and always have been because sometimes they were like truth tellers in Victorian society, and sometimes in the dock, they could say things that were otherwise unsayable. Things like, "My husband shouldn't have beaten me," or "That man shouldn't have raped me," or. My children were starving and I was desperate. So sometimes their testimony can be the testimony that stands for a wider group of women. We're going to play a clip from one episode. This is where you're introducing an episode about the killer Lizzie Borden. Oh, Lizzie Borden. And we all need our very best detective skills for this particular murder mystery, which has confounded people for over a hundred years. It's the case of Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 whacks. When she seen what she had done, she gave her father 41. The male journalists covering the trial were horrified by the spectacle of women clamoring for attendance. Joe Howard described the audience in the courtroom as a sea of calico mixed with silk. The idea that this very calm woman could, using a hatchet or axe, kill two people, that just didn't fit any of these investigators' image of what a proper upper-class woman would do. If she were an ordinary woman, she would have cried and cried. The difficulty is she is not an ordinary woman. She is a puzzle psychologic. Mm. Tell us about Lizzie Borden. Who was she? Well, she used a... Well, it's not proven. She got off in the courtroom. It's widely thought that she used a hatchet to chop up her dad. And doing something like that, uh, all of these crimes, they're they're interesting because you can see they make people talk about what women should do, what women should be like. And when you get women who transgress against that, it causes it causes conversations that, to me, are just as interesting as the crime itself. So, what era was that from? What age was Lucy Borden when she hatched? Lizzie, Lizzie, Lizzie sorry, yeah, Lizzie, yeah. When she late 19th century in 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 America, and she was from uh, a, a an upper crust family. She was very well off, but her father was pretty mean, and if she did it, uh, her motive it seems would have been. That she was, um, she couldn't, she couldn't get out of this situation. Now you don't get you, you know, um, upper class, well off women whose fathers have got lots of money do not get much sympathy from me generally in life. But it could be that she felt so trapped by this situation that the only way out of it she could see was to take this desperate action. Why is it you think that apparently 
podcasts about female killers and podcasts about murder are exceptionally popular with female listeners. There's some interesting theories about this. One theory is that it's to do with women catastrophizing. Have I said that right? Yes. Thinking of catastrophes. Thinking, like, if the worst should happen, I need to prepare myself. I need to think about how to respond in these situations. That's a, that's a genuine theory that exists. Um, but I think that uh, it can go, you know, it can go too far. I, I dislike the way that many true crime podcasts kind of revel in death and horror. And you've got to keep that in check. You've got to have humanity for the suffering of these people. And also realise that some of them are guilty and that some of them, you can't excuse what they did by the circumstances in which they found themselves. Totally, totally. One murderess that we looked at for whom I have a sneaking admiration is the one who kept bumping off the husbands for the life insurance, which, <laughs> not, not good behaviour, do not do this at home. But uh, mm, I kind of admire the way that she... Espoused Victorian values, if you like. If she had been a male Victorian, I'm sure she would have been founding businesses and running factories and becoming some kind of major industrialist. But she took the means that were available to her. Because one of the BBC series that you've made is a very British murder, looking at what you call the morbid national obsession of the British which murder, which probably is not just a British obsession, it's probably an international one, isn't it? Well, I think it's linked to um, the process of industrialisation, which happened early in Britain, but has happened in many other countries now. Because uh, if you live in a pre-industrial society... Your greatest fears, I would suggest, are dying of famine or disease or maybe in a war. So you, you can get no pleasure about reading about death, basically. But after industrialization, it is much more likely that your life will be cleaner and safer and comfortable. And that opens up this space in the head, if you like, to worry about things like being killed by the dodgy person who lives next door. So I think detective fiction goes along with paranoia and anxiety and neurosis and all those all those other things that we enjoy about modern life in the city you make a lot of television but you haven't gone for documentary or docudrama you have gone you must be probably the millionth person who has done the culture club to nominate succession as your favorite tv show what is it about succession that you like Oh, I like the way that the characters are so awful and yet they have a gleam of something that hints towards redemption within them. I mean, you can't rule any of them off, can I, I don't know. It, for those who don't know, this is a family drama. It's King Lear in the modern day, really. We have this media mogul in his, who's he going to leave his empire to? And I love all the jostling for power. But I also love the way that all of these terrible, terrible people in it just occasionally give you a little glint of humanity. Very occasional. Let's get a clip, and we have to do, whenever we play a clip from Succession, we have to give a language warning because it's almost impossible <laughs> to actually get a clip without having the F word or other words included. We can stop you. And we will stop you. Blow this up. You need our vote for a change of control. Yeah. You need all of us. You need a supermajority, and we can kill it. And we will. You're playing toy soldiers. I have you beat, you morons. Well, no, because you need a supermajority. Oh, well, no, because I need a supermajority. If she's still on, 
It's all done. Can we get her back on? Dad, what is this? Yeah. Hello? Uh, yeah. Caroline, you're on with Roman, Kendall, and Siobhan. Hi, Mom. Mom? All right, well, I don't necessarily want to do any more tonight, Logan. Your mother and I have been reviewing the terms of the divorce agreement. And we've agreed that the arrangements were a little antiquated. Oh, fuck, Mom, he got to you. Oh, seriously, Mom, already? What the fuck, no, dude? I can't get into it, all right? I, I think everything will be fine. Red Chandler's dealing with it all. Mom, you just slit our throats. Oh, I'm so looking forward to season four already. <gasps> is there going to be a season four? Oh, yes, there is. Brilliant. It's in production already, apparently. Oh, cool. Yeah, it is. Well, he's right. You say King Lear. But for those who have never been fans of Shakespeare, they just love the story of this. Every twist, every turn, the viciousness with which they fight each other. But um, it's hard to find redeeming qualities in these particular individuals, and yet they're compelling to watch. They are. They are. Something keeps you hooked. There's something entirely different, though. We're going to come to for your final choice. Excuse me. We asked you to nominate a favourite play or theatre show or musical. And again, a few people have gone for this. This is popular as well. You've gone for Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. For those who are not familiar with that... Tell us about it. Well, when I was growing up in Nottingham, I went every Saturday to the Theatre Royal to watch Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And I was in it and I was sang it and I played it. And it, it's, oh, for me, it stands for the magic of going to the theatre and putting on, a, putting on a show, which, well, I don't want to make my life sound too glamorous, but when you're making a television documentary... It's it's it you it's something of the same experience, I think, trying to create a different world in which people can lose themselves and enjoy themselves. Let's hear a little bit of Jason Donovan singing Any Dream Will Do. Of course. Classic song. You're bringing me back to my own primary school days with that one as oh, well. Oh, no! Oh, there you go. I want to finish, though, by asking you, I'm looking through your extensive CV of television work 
and an enormous amount of British history over the centuries that you have investigated and brought to screen. But have you ever touched upon Britain's relationship with Ireland and Irish history? Mm. I once made a programme about the so-called glorious revolution in the 17th in the oh, 17th right. century when William William the 3rd came into came to take over the British throne. Okay. Because it has been suggested recently, and it has been some discussion here in Ireland, that there is a degree of ignorance about Irish history in Britain. Oh, you're, so, you're so right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Would um, you consider maybe a BBC series looking into British history in Ireland? Pitch it maybe to your bosses. Nothing could be more interesting and fascinating, and timely, I think, too. I might hold you to that. Ah. Lucy Worsley, thank you very much for joining us for the Culture Club. The book is Agatha Christie, A Very Elusive Woman. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today.